HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Summer in New York is holding on by a loose thread, so it only seems fitting that today's show is mostly about ice cream. New Yorkers and Los Angelinos will be familiar with the feeling you get when walking into Van Leeuwen Artisan Ice Cream, an all-American vibe with shiny counters and fun pastel colors where the ice cream is house-made from the best ingredients around. But spend any time looking at the menu and you'll quickly realize that it's less Americana than initially meets the eye. Featuring experimental flavors with ingredients of all cultures and traditions, including black sesame chocolate cake, Thai ice cream, spicy peanut, and Szechuan peppercorn, to name just a few. So what's up with that? I'm Andrea Ween, and you are listening to Meant to be Eaten. In the studio with me today is Ben Van Leeuwen, the proprietor of the well-known and loved Van Leeuwens, and also the owner of the Indonesian-inspired restaurant Salamat Paji. Pronunciation, um, okay? Almost In Greenport. Salamat Pagi. Pagi, got it. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks for having me. So I have to start off the show by saying in 2010, your food truck outside of my office was like a saving grace. <laughs> I would get so sick of being in the cubicle, hanging out, trying to do work, and I would run down and get ice cream from the truck, and it was amazing. So awesome. thank you for putting your truck there right in so front of my office. For. Yeah. <laughs> so to get started, I want to talk a little bit about your background, your story, and how you went from driving a good humor food truck to running a mini ice cream empire. What did you learn from that experience and, and how did you get started? Sure. Yeah. When I was 18 years old, I needed a summer job and saw an ad in the paper um, advertising good humor trucks to make 500 bucks a week, which was an unimaginably large amount of money to me then. So I was very excited by that. And I spent two summers selling chocolate eclair bars and strawberry shortcake bars and chip witch cookie sandwiches. 
Um, and it was an interesting business model. I went on to college. I traveled a lot um, with money that I'd earned from the ice cream truck. And in my travels, one kind of interesting thing that struck me was that in other countries, Italy, Thailand, good food wasn't a sort of special thing. Um, everybody was a, you know, quote unquote foodie. Um, and now when people ask me, they're like, are you a foodie? I'm like, boy, well, I, I eat three times a day. It's sort of has a lot to do with who I am. So how could anyone not be? It's such a huge part of all of our lives. Um, so that travel experience got me more and more into food and got me excited about the idea of creating really good food that was accessible and not really like a special occasion thing. And I was in New York about five years after I had started selling ice cream off these sort of traditional ice cream trucks, looking at a Mr. Softy truck. And I thought, why don't we do an ice cream truck with really awesome ice cream? Um, I was 22 years old, had no idea how to make ice cream. So I thought, let's find some good ice cream and sell it off the truck. Um, we started tasting a lot of stuff. And this was 11 years ago. So the artisanal ice cream scene in America was almost non-existent. Um, and most of what we were trying had corn syrup in it and a lot of gums and stabilizers, which some people really enjoy that kind of ice cream, but it, it wasn't for us. And another thing that struck us was almost nobody was using exceptional ingredients in ice cream. Um, ice cream was sort of seen as a more fun thing, not as artisanal product. So I remember one dairy industry person said to me, like, no one ever uses good chocolate in ice cream because the eggs and cream totally mute the flavors. I was like, huh, you know, maybe maybe they're right. So one of our favorite suppliers still is Michelle Quizel. They source directly from seven organic and biodynamic plantations. And we got some samples of their chocolate and sort of made it into ice cream to see if this was true, if you know, using great chocolate. Really ice tough R and D. Was a waste. <laughs> it was so fun. I think we made seventeen different chocolate ice creams. But the moment we tasted it, we were like, Whoa, using the best chocolate in ice cream makes the best chocolate ice cream, which is kind of obvious. Yeah, but I guess um, back then when people weren't really doing that, you kind of sometimes defer to the experts, quote unquote, yeah. to what's been done, right? And it, it, it's exactly that old adage of it's, it's the way we've always done it. So why right. not keep doing it that way? Because it's not broken. So why fix it? And you guys just elevated that. We did that. And to this day, we as we grow, we're very proud to like not only continuing using continue using as good ingredients, but sort of asking, like, can we use even better chocolate or can we switch to, you know, the best truly free-range organic egg yolks or things like that, um, which I think is unique in food as you scale up. Um, there's a lot of moments where people push you to sort of start cutting costs. But Yeah, that was actually one of my questions about slow food in New York specifically when everyone's moving so quickly and also, you know, I guess recently I watched the documentary about how McDonald's kind of came to be, which is incredibly mm. depressing in many ways. I don't know if you've seen it. I, I guess it wasn't a documentary. It was it was a movie, but based on that true story. I have seen that. It's okay. Really okay. Good. It's it yeah. is great. It's a great yeah. movie, but it's sad. Oh, it's so sad. It's so yeah. sad. But it's it shows yeah. you how quickly they took that their milkshakes and made them into milk powder and it was done for economic reasons and uh it just it goes to show how fast that slippery slope can mm -hmm. start and how difficult it is to maintain 
margins when they're so slim. And I can only imagine in cities like New York and LA where that is exponentially more difficult, how hard it's been for you guys to maintain that integrity. It's, it is challenging in New York. I mean, New York's a tough place to do business because expenses are really high. Um, but on the flip side, the market's huge. So you have a ton of customers. Um, but in terms of maintaining quality and not sacrificing quality for profit, um, we're very lucky to be still like an almost 100% family-owned business. So I own Van Leeuwen with my brother, Peter Van Leeuwen, and our business partner, Laura O'Neill. And we aren't beholden to anyone except for our you know, team and our customers. So the goal is to make the best product possible. We, of course, want to make money. But once you, not that we're anywhere near this point, go public or um, go the private equity route, profit does become the only goal, which for some industries is really good and it creates great efficiencies. But great efficiency in food is not good. It generally makes the worst product. And I see that traveling, which I love to travel and I'm lucky to, and places with worse economies usually have much better food because there's less importing, logistics aren't as good, which means the food system is more localized. Um, So efficiency, I think, is often not great for tastiness and sort of making truly great food. Yeah, I had a theory when I was in Vietnam, that the lower the stool was to the ground and the less items they had on the menu, the better. And there were women that were only making one type of soup and they'd been doing it for 30 years right. and they made it from 6 a.m. until 9 a.m. And if you didn't get there by then, you didn't have the soup. So awesome. I completely agree. When you think about this food philosophy that you've developed, and I'm sure it's evolved over the years, but starting out, how did you know to be looking for those types of ingredients. Where did that food philosophy come from with you and your brother to say, we really want to make the best? Um, Part of it was taste. So just um, an innate uh, appreciation of things that tasted really awesome. Um, One of the first great food experiences of my life was working at a bakery in upstate New York, close to where I went to college, called Mrs. London's. And... That bakery was started by a bread maker called Michael London, um, who used only biodynamic wheat grown in North Dakota and Celtic sea salt first harvest. Um, And talking to him about ingredients really got me excited. And he um, showed me a book called Zingerman's Guide to Good Food, which had these... The infamous Zingerman. So many careers started there. Really good food stories. And I was like, whoa, cheddar cheese, that's real balsamic vinegar. Um, So that sort of got me even more excited about the ingredients. And then the way we started the process really was um, of creating these flavors was Google. So it was like best pistachios in the world. And then you quickly read that Sicilian pistachios are meant to be the best. But we're like, all right, let's taste everything. And like, sure enough, the taste was um, like so amazing. We were blown away right away. Um, Chocolate was harder because there were a lot of really awesome chocolates. Um, but we wanted always to make a super pure product with no ingredients that weren't sort of recognizable. So with chocolate, we didn't want to use any soy lecithin so that now there's a lot of amazing producers um, in America who aren't using any soy lecithin. But then there were really only a few. And Michelle Clizel in France was one. So 
Um, and then as you start tasting these ingredients and using them and eating them, your palate changes and your standard goes up and what tasted good to you before that. You start driving the Ferrari like, instead of the exactly, Accord. Yeah. yeah. And there's no going back. Right, right. So you mentioned, I mentioned in the intro, some of the unique flavors that you have developed. So when you're designing one of these new flavors, like the Thai iced, uh, iced coffee or iced tea and the spicy peanut and all these, how do you think about designing that? Is it inspiration from the flavors that you've tried or is it a cultural inspiration that comes back around? Sure. Initially, the flavor inspiration was purely based off single ingredients. And for our first five years, we only made single um, f- ingredient flavors. Um, then we became more customer driven. So people love chunks in their ice cream. Um, they love swirls. So we were like, all right, how do we do that? But stay true to our ethos. And we do that by, of course, making everything in house with locally grown organic flowers. Um, but the sort of process of deciding the new flavors is um, what do we want to do? What would we like? But then also like, what does our customer want? Um, because it is, you know, 100% about the customer more than just what we want. So now what we try to do is do a combination of a little bit sort of new and inventive combined with something really familiar. Um, so people love cake and ice cream, rose ice cream in the Middle East, um, in Turkey is pretty typical, but here that's like a very weird flavor for people. So we're like, okay, what if we do cake in the rose ice cream? So we did, I really love this flavor. We did a vegan rose ice cream and rose doesn't really have a color when you're using it as a flavor. So we added, um, beet powder to make it pink and we made chunks of actually gluten-free cardamom cake with chickpea flour and then we did a swirl of cherry jam. So it was kind of like this really weird flavor, but very American in its decadence of having like jam and chunks of cake in it. And also um, very New York then with like the gluten-free aspect thrown in. And I appreciate that because I have celiac and I'm gluten-free. So when oh, I come wow. to eat your ice cream, I'm always very happy to see that it's marked and, yeah. and I know clearly what, what's safe and what's not. So when you think about authenticity when creating a flavor, like what aspect of authenticity is important to you? Is it the customer experience, the tradition and the culture you're trying to celebrate or a region's terroir? Mm-hmm. Have you thought about that much? Um, we do. So authenticity to us, you know, staying authentic to ourselves is using like the best ingredients always and never sort of wavering or compromising on that. So we never use any gums or stabilizers. We never use any natural flavors, which are clear liquids that are considered natural and taste like strawberries or taste like maple. Um, And then sort of the other part of staying authentic is, I mean, we don't much think about being authentic to any region. I mean, we're Americans, which means we're from like a million different places. Um, And the more sort of I learn about the history of food, the clearer it becomes that kind of nothing is really from anywhere. Um, You know, tomatoes are from the new world, yet we think of them as this integral part of Italian cooking. Chilies, I think we're only introduced to Southeast Asia a few hundred years ago, yet Southeast Asian food we think of as spicy. Um, One one really cool thing I learned in Mexico a few years ago is that the, um, the carnitas, was started by the Lebanese. Um, The Muslims from Spain, who were Lebanese, 
who, during the Spanish Inquisition, went to Mexico, and they, I think it was harder, or maybe they weren't Muslim if they're reading Pork, I'm not positive, but they were Lebanese in Spain and had to leave during the Inquisition, and lamb was not as prevalent there, so they started doing, like, the spit-roasted pork, and that's also how the flour tortilla um, sort of got developed in Mexico. So it's thing, it's this thing we think of as, like, such a Mexican dish, but really it was from Lebanese immigrants to Mexico a few hundred years ago. Um, so authenticity in food, yeah, it's I, I guess to bring it back, authenticity for us is um, using the best possible ingredients, super pure, and then trying to make it really delicious rather than ever trying to be, like, cool or inventive or on trend. Um, sometimes we touch on trends, um, but we never say, let's do a really creative flavor. We say, let's do something really delicious. In that process, sometimes um, it might you might create something that is creative. What have been some of your favorites? You mentioned the rose cardamom cake and some of the ones that you've really taken a gamble on that have not paid out. Sure. Um, so like nine years ago, I think our second year in business, maybe eight years ago, I wanted to do licorice ice cream. And licorice ice cream is really popular in Australia. Um, my partner, Laura, is Australian. And it's not really licorice flavored. It's anise flavored, and they put some gray food coloring in it and make it this kind of black ice cream. Um, but, of course, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to use real licorice. So I was like, okay, where does the best licorice come from? And the best licorice root um, like grows in China, so we had a lot of trouble like finding an importer who had this and we got this licorice root, which is a very medicinal thing. It's not really a yeah. like delicious thing. You almost and needed like the drop from Amsterdam or from Holland that people love and put into candies. Right. And so we made this licorice ice cream. Um, you know, I think then we made 30 gallons, which was, you know, so much ice cream for us then, like in year two or year three. And it was terrible. It was really <laughs> awful. I was like, wow, this is really bad. But I was like, but it's pure and it's the real licorice thing. So I was like, all right, let's put some orange oil in and some vanilla and cinnamon. And it, it, it wasn't good at all. So that one totally didn't work. Um, one flavor I love, though, that's doing really well, super popular, is we're doing a black sesame flavor, which is really popular in Japan. And then another flavor that's like kind of popular in Japan, not as much as charcoal ice cream. Um, and they usually do it in soft serve form. And people, it doesn't have a taste at all, but it's like really black and people love that. Instagram worthy. Super Instagrammable. So I was like, oh, let's do the black sesame, which isn't that black when you mix it in ice cream. It's more gray with the charcoal, which makes it really black. And then I was like, and we should add chunks of chocolate cake because that's super American. Um, so that one I love. It's really tasty. And then we did, right now we have a double Concord grape vegan so it's the house-made cashew milk, coconut cream, cocoa butter, and then we blend in fresh Concord grapes, and then we make a Concord grape jam and swirl it throughout. So good. Um, Concord grape, what, the first time I ever had Concord grape, a fresh one, was not too long ago, not too many years ago, and I remember tasting it and thinking, oh my God, like this is what all those jams tasted like. I never thought they tasted like grapes, you know, back when you were a kid, right. smuckers and all that stuff. But they were modeling it off Concord grape. Of course, those were all sugars and, you know, terrible corn syrups yeah. and stuff. But yeah, right. I couldn't believe it. So I can only imagine that that Concord grape flavor is out of this world. All right, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what it's like to run an Indonesian-inspired restaurant as an American with Ben Van Leeuwen. <laughs> 
This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollock scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollock is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollock purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. I'm Andrea Ween, and you are listening to Meant to be Eaten. Today in the studio, we are talking to Ben Van Leeuwen of the well-known and well-loved Van Leeuwen ice cream and also owner of the Indonesian-inspired restaurant Salamat Pot. I'm going to say it wrong again. Salamat Pagi. Pagi, yeah. Pagi. Which Andrew. means happy day in Bahasa Indonesian. I got it. All right. So let's, before we move on to the restaurant, talk a little bit about why your ice creams are so special. And I know you have your traditional one with, with cream and milk that's dairy. And then you also have a vegan, which I'm going to tell you, I tried it for the first time and it is like knock your socks off good. I think if I didn't know that it was vegan, I would have no idea. Yeah, no, I often taste them and I'm like, wait. Someone made a mistake. They put dairy in this. Like, we did it wrong. And then I'm like, whoa, this is amazing. But yeah, so the vegan ice cream we're making with um, homemade cashew cream. So it's basically really, really thick cashew milk. Raw cashews get soaked overnight in water and then blended. Um, Coconut cream. Then we use raw Ecuadorian cocoa butter, which is the fat from chocolate. More raw coconut oil to make it even more luscious. Organic cane sugar. And then as an egg replacement, we use a tiny bit of organic carabine. Um, and what makes it so special is our vegan ice cream has like 17 to 18% fat, depending on the flavor and about 15% solids, um, which is really, really high for vegan ice creams. Um, for some reason, most of the vegan ice creams you can buy in the store, like a lot lower in fat and don't have much chew and solids. Um, but they have a lot of like gums and stabilizers to sort of simulate the thickness. Um, so that kind of makes the vegan ice cream really special. And as you said, it's sometimes hard to tell the difference or some people even think it's better. And on top of that, we're finding the best ingredients for flavorings. And for the classic, what makes that really different, um, it's kind of how any really awesome pastry chef would make ice cream. Um, we use a ton of cream, so it's very high in fat, and then a lot of egg yolks. So in America, if you want to call it ice cream, um, it has to be less than 1.25% egg yolks. Um, ours, depending on flavor, is 6 to 8% organic wow. egg yolks. So it's like five or six times. So in the stores, Van Leeuwen is called French ice cream. We can't call it ice cream. Um, so really high in eggs, um, really high in fat, um, and really high in solids too. So it's a chew. Um, it's pretty easy to make. It just costs a lot more to do it that way. That must be why. Like, I'm a big high fat person. I did ketogenic for a while, so mm-hmm. high fat is like my my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> so that must be why it's so good. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the restaurant. So how did you go from something that was pretty seemingly unconnected in ice cream shops to Indonesian cooking? What was the inspiration there? Sure. So 
my business partner, Laura O'Neill, and I used to be a couple, and she's from Melbourne, Australia. So we would go back there for five weeks a year when we when winters were still slow for us at Van Leeuwen. And we would kind of, instead of, we'd stay with her family and then we'd fly to Bali for a little vacation. And um, it was sort of much less expensive going on a vacation there than sort of going somewhere in Australia. And we fell in love with Bali, which is not hard to do for anyone who's ever been. They know that. And we're really into the food. And in New York, there's very little Indonesian food, almost none. Um, in Holland, there's a lot of Indonesian food, too. I'd gone there a couple of times when I was little because my dad is of Dutch origin. And we got really into this food and sort of had a dream of doing Indonesian food in New York. Um, and we found, sort of at the same time as all of this, we moved our ice cream factory to this old Polish restaurant in Greenpoint. This was in 2010. Um, and we were really small then, you know, not making a ton of ice cream. I think we had one or two shops, a couple of trucks, um, no wholesale or very little wholesale. Um, so we had all this extra space and we had an extra espresso machine too. So we didn't have any money. So my partners were like, no, we can't open an Indonesian restaurant. And I was like looking at this old espresso machine. I was like, geez, you know, we should kind of use this and make some money. So I quickly wrote this business plan and I gave it to Pete and Lauren. I was like, I think we can open an Indonesian restaurant here and only spend $2,000 to open it. Um, I was like, actually, I'm sure we can do that. And they were like, all right, let's do it. Um, we did it. It cost a lot more than that. Yeah, I was going to say, but that yeah, seems, it was that seems low. I, I was overly optimistic, <laughs> took longer. Um, but we did it. We just kind of went for it. We were making ice cream, Indonesian food in the same place. It was really crazy. Um, but yeah, we in the restaurant's been going for over five years now. So I know you've gotten some criticism for not being Indonesian enough um, not Indonesian at all. Not Indonesian yeah. <laughs> at all, yeah. So how do you think about cooking from another's culture? Sure. Um, I mean, our goal is to make really delicious food that people like to eat, that makes people happy. Um, we're, we opened the restaurant because we were inspired by the food we ate in Indonesia, particularly like kefir lime leaves and using fresh turmeric and fresh galangal and um, ginger blossoms and really awesome things like that. So... When we opened Salamat Pagi, um, a lot of the dishes were, I mean, if you want to call them authentic, you know, were very much modeled after things you'd eat there. Um, now we've moved to kind of just making really awesome food with what's available here. Um, so, of course, we're not using, you know, tropical fishes, which is what they'd eat in Indonesia. We use bluefish or, you know, whatever is sort of local and available at the time and wild. Um, so, yeah, in terms of the authenticity, though, um, yeah, we just want to make awesome food, and love Indonesian food and make stuff that makes people really happy. And it was kind of easier to, or not easier, but it seemed more needed in New York to kind of bring awareness to Indonesian flavors, at least, because there's so little Indonesian food here. And it's such a, it's such a unique and like such a flavorful cuisine. It, when people ask me to describe it who haven't had it, it's kind of like a little bit like, it, particularly the way they cook in Bali, it's a little bit like Thai meets Indian. Um, it has this sort of like rusticness of Indian, um, but a little bit more of like the freshness of Thai, which you'll find in Southern India too. Um, but yeah, we, we're big fans of their cooking. <laughs> Do you think that there's a difference between 
an Indonesian or a Balinese restaurant and an Indonesian or Balinese inspired restaurant, which is what you guys call yours? Um, yeah, absolutely. I guess, huh. It's tough because if you're in Indonesia, I guess in a way those are all Indonesian restaurants, but they're doing a lot of sort of inspired food and everything's constantly changing. So maybe there's no difference. Yeah, I don't really think so. Yeah, I mean, something I've been thinking about lately and in the context of the show in particular is this idea of cultural appropriation versus misappropriation, right? So cultural appropriation, I think, in many ways is pretty inevitable. It's kind of the exchange of ideas, the exchange of flavors, of ingredients, of, you know, diversity. So how do you guys think about honoring that and honoring what you've learned in places like Bali and brought back here to New York? Because I think, you know, one of the criticisms often of, of white chefs starting mm. minority owned minority restaurants is that those chefs that are cooking that food in that place or even here in New York aren't getting that same level of notoriety, perhaps. So how do you think about that? Wait, they're not getting the same level of notoriety. As maybe a white chef cooking ah, right, their right, food. Right, right, right. Um, Hmm. I mean, I, I think that would just kind of have to do with how good the restaurant is. Um, so, I mean, maybe for whatever reason, maybe in some places, like people from foreign countries are cooking food. I mean, in Japan, there's, I, I think in Tokyo or something, there's like more Italian Michelin starred restaurants than there are in Rome or it, I, I might be off on that statistic, but it's like, wow, they're really good at that. Um, but in terms of like sort of honoring and respecting it, I mean, to us, it's like the fact that we call it Indonesian and talk about that, um, is kind of it as opposed to just saying we're opening a new American restaurant, which I don't think there's anything wrong with and making Indonesian food or that's completely inspired by that. Um, so yeah, I think kind of calling it Indonesian is, sort of giving it a bit of respect and saying, we think you guys do amazing stuff over there. We were so excited by it that we wanted to try and do it here. Do you have any stories of people coming in and having no idea what Indonesian is and then being able to educate them a bit on what that culture is all about? Um, educating them on the culture, I mean, I, I don't know that that much about the culture other than sort of the eating culture and food culture there but one really cool thing is being able to kind of introduce people to Indonesian food especially with our dishes that are kind of more traditional and more carbon copies of you know what's being done in certain places there but with localized um, sort of meats and the bulk ingredients like beef rendang and just like seeing people that are absolutely blown away and they're like, whoa, this is so amazing, like Indonesian food. I had no idea, um, which was our experience when we first had it. Um, it's such a special cuisine and so underrepresented in the U.S. Um, there's just so few places. Why do you think that is? I think partially for, and I don't know the reason why this, there aren't a ton of Indonesians in America um, compared to like Thai or Vietnamese or Chinese. Um, so I think that's part of it and I don't really, yeah, I, I don't know. Cause it's, it's so good. Um, it's like one of my favorite types of food. Yeah, it is. I actually dated someone for a while and his mom was Dutch Indonesian from Holland oh, cool. and some of the food that she made was, was out of this world. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the traditional dishes that you mentioned for people who might not know what Indonesian food looks like, mm -hmm. what are some traditional dishes? You mentioned rendang, but 
What is that? Um, sure. So beef rendang is a beef stew that's cooked pretty slowly. Um, and you cook a lot of spices down with coconut milk. Um, so the coconut milk caramelizes and gets really brown and different rendangs have different spices. I think ours has like 23. So it has, um, fresh turmeric, um, white turmeric, which is a different kind of turmeric, which has like a slightly different flavor. Um, galangal, which is a sort of gingery horseradish tasting root, um, Rendang has kefir lime leaves as well, but they're more put into like infused. They're not sort of blended in fully. Um, we use some Balinese long pepper in the rendang, which is this really cool like pine comb shaped peppercorn that sort of tastes like almost between like cloves and peppercorn. It's really good and it's hard to find. You almost never see it. Um, and you cook that down for a really long time. So it's a braised beef dish. But the caramelization of the coconut milk, um, like blended with all the spices, fresh and dried, just creates such a unique flavor, um, such a special beef stew. And then some of the fresher dishes, um, one thing that's very Balinese is called sambal mate, um, and it's lemongrass that you bruise a lot and slice really, really thinly, mixed with kefir lime leaves, chilies, um, if you can get these little things called sour limes, which really only grow in Southeast Asia, you would use sour lime juice, um, coconut oil, and then you take shrimp paste, which is a very like Malaysian and Indonesian thing. When you go a little more north, um, like Thailand, China, Vietnam, they're using fish sauce. And then further south in Southeast Asia, they're using shrimp paste more. Um, and then we take the shrimp paste and roast, and it's basically shrimp that are fermented. Um, and we roast that. And that's the sambal, which is a sauce. Um, and that's really good with fish cakes. Um, so the fish cakes are whatever good local. Um, I like doing it with really fatty fish, so like mackerel. Um, we'll sometimes put a little bit of porgy in there too. Um, and you mix the fish. Again, a lot of the spices are similar with kefir lime, ginger, galangal, chilies, and wrap it in banana leaves and grill it. And then serve that with the sambal mate. It's so awesome. Well, now my mouth is yes. watering, so yeah. I will be coming in for dinner very shortly. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Absolutely. It's been great to have you. Thanks for having me. People can check out the restaurant in Greenpoint, eat the ice cream all over yeah. town and in L.A. So thank you so much. We cool. appreciate you being on. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Andrea Ween, and this has been Meant to be Eaten. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.